All right, welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark of Gahane Law. My co-host is Heather Malarik of Merrick Law. Um, Heather, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Evan. Um, it's a cold, cold day in February as we're recording this. And I wish I were my cat, who is currently perched on top of my bookshelf with one paw in a Kleenex box and his face planted in the hole sound asleep. That is pretty much where I want to be today. <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind that posture myself. Um, but here we are, nonetheless. Um, yeah, as happens in northern Alberta at the beginning of the year is you go through a series of false springs followed by second, third, and fourth winters. And so, yeah, it got nice and warm, almost all the snow melted, and now it's minus 30. Yeah. But we made our choice. We are joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Kim, how are you doing? I love the cold weather. It's hilarious. We had a big wig fly in from Toronto. Amazing timing. Landed yesterday just for the degrees to hit him. So it's his fault or her fault. It's just too funny. I mean, we live with this. It's fine. We know how to dress for it. But when foreigners come into our province in these uh, freezing cold uh, temperatures, it's just funny. Love it. It is funny. And I've never been colder than like standing outside Pearson International Airport at minus 20 because I didn't know minus 20 could be humid, but Toronto finds a way. Because I don't know if you know this, but humidity is directly related to air temperature in that what I should say is the carrying capacity of the air for moisture is related to, to how cold or how warm it is. And the colder it is, the less carrying capacity for moisture is, which is why like today, all my skin on my hands is like cracking from the dryness. Ontario, minus 20, they're like, oh, we can stuff in some moisture. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> it's a dry cold here. <laughs> yeah, and that does make a difference. <laughs> okay, so today we have a great guest. I don't know. I heard a rumor that he was actually going to take over uh, my role in the podcast. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's denying it okay well we have <laughs> we have russell schmidt who was introduced to me by heather Malarek and has joined the team here at the Hain law office in edmonton and he's just uh he's just like out there and around the corner to me we could almost see each other uh and to give you a little background about Russ, we've mentioned him. I think I feel like we've mentioned him once or twice on here, but Russ started off uh, practicing criminal law and he did that for a few years. And then he decided, you know what? This is too crazy. I need a much less crazy area of law. I'm going to do family. And he switched to family law. Um, I'll let him get into whether or not it's less or more crazy, but 
um, you know, that gives him an interesting perspective and whether he likes it or not, he's well suited to take on family law files that have a criminal twist to them. And, um, he often gets referrals from former, uh, colleagues, well, colleagues at the criminal bar because he's the family law lawyer that they know. Um, and he does a great job at helping sort out those EPOs and getting them on the way to settling their family matters. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Russell Schmidt. Welcome, Russ. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Heather's been trying to get you on here for, I don't know, probably since we started. It reminds me a little bit of that office episode where Michael finally traps Jim and Pam into going to his house for dinner. Uh, it's this elaborate thing. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm pretty excited as well. The tiny so, wall mounted TV. Is that the first yeah. episode? Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's a good one. Well, we're certainly glad to have you here. And I, I, I keep trying to bug Evan about this, about getting to be a registered collaborative family lawyer, but I feel like as a proponent of collaborative law, I'd be remiss in not pointing out that you're also a registered collaborative lawyer. And if memory serves, that's also how you and I met, was at the training for collaborative, um, I think in Red Deer, in a Red Deer conference room. That's right. That was... That was a few years ago, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We met at the training. I was still a criminal lawyer at that point, but I was just um, starting to make the change to family law. And uh, I thought going from criminal law to family law, that'll work because with criminal law, I'm in court, you know, most days, every day, um, you know, all day. And I thought, well, family law, there's a lot of courtroom stuff because that's what I saw at the courthouse. And then I found my way into the collaborative training, <laughs> and which is taking everything completely out of court. So yeah, that was, that was a jarring experience for sure. Um, I just lost my question. It was on the tip of my brain there and it just evaporated. <laughs> uh, I, I, my question is, Russ, how did you dodge Heather for so long? I think, oh, it, it, it was brilliant. I said, you know, I, I knew, I happened to know when she'd be busy based on, you know, different information I received. And I would send her emails that I knew would get buried in her inbox and say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to come on the podcast. And three months later, <laughs> I just like a response. It. Mm -hmm. lobbed it mm -hmm. right back over the net right mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that worked for a while yeah all right well you're here now and i'm going to ask you all of the hardest questions about everything then um, <laughs> um so maybe we'll start maybe i'll start with a kind of general question which is what i think we've done past episodes on family law in general and kind of how it operates and some of the challenges um do you, can you give us a bit of an outline of how the family law process might be different if there are criminal charges or EPOs involved? Yeah, so one of the unique things that happens is um, everything starts off in court right away um, when you've got uh, 
uh, either an EPO, an emergency protection order, or criminal charges, um, or both. So what we'll typically see is uh, there's an, in an incident or an alleged incident in the house. Uh, could be an assault or something like that. Uh, the police get involved. Uh, one of the spouses will be charged uh, and released with a court date in criminal court. Then the other spouse will uh, go and get an emergency protection order. And then there's another court date for that. So there's two court dates right away. And then it's not uncommon for one or the other spouse then to apply for something like a parenting order or a statement of claim for divorce or something like that, that inevitably results in a third court appearance. So uh, there's a lot of activity uh, right off the start where you've got court in three different sort of courtrooms, one designated for protection orders, another one for uh, just dealing with family stuff and then criminal court. So it's uh, it starts off a lot busier, I would say, than your typical um, divorce or separation, if, if there is such a thing as that, um, mm. where things sort of hopefully proceed in a, in a measured and predictable way. Mm -hmm. That's probably the biggest uh, thing that we see that, that makes it unique. Is that kind of element that you're in court right away, but also it sounds like possibly three different kinds of court running simultaneously. It, the, the way I explain it to uh, people who ask about it is, yeah, it's like three different trains on separate tracks, all running at the same time. And um, they're involved there. There's overlap there. That's kind of where the analogy uh, ends. But yeah, I mean, you can get um, as many as five different lawyers dealing with this one family. Um, mm -hmm. And so it, it, it can be extremely busy it's extremely stressful obviously for the people involved um and if you know from there it, what you want to do hopefully is just calm everybody down in the sense of okay let's let's try and streamline this let's get this organized a little bit and um but yeah it's it, you're right it's just three different court operations going on uh, all at once Got a rudimentary question for you two. Sure. In the, in the courthouse, so this is the basics here. In the courthouse, there's different rooms. And are, are specific rooms always going to be like a criminal room and or a family room or whatever? Like, how do I visualize what this what this looks like for people to show up and go through these three different train tracks? Mm-hmm. So if you go to the Edmonton uh, courthouse, there's essentially two buildings. One is provincial court. The other is court of King's bench. The criminal matter is going to be uh, on the provincial court side. They have six or seven different court rooms for, um, for different matters. They have trial courtrooms. Uh, they have one that just deals with um, domestic violence cases. They've got another one that deals with um, just things that are at the early stages of, of the file. And, and then another one for just sentencing. There can be a bit of overlap, but generally that's what you're going to find when it comes to that criminal matter. 
the other building is the Court of King's Bench, and that is where you're going to uh, deal with the EPO and the and any of the family law stuff. So before COVID, uh, what would happen is uh, typically you would have emergency protection order matters uh, start at about 930 and the judge uh, presiding there would try and get everything done by 10 o'clock. Uh, at 10 o'clock, hopefully they're at the end of the EPO list and then they start the family list. So frequently you would have the same uh, justice dealing with EPOs, getting that done. And now we've moved on to family. So, uh, yeah, that, that was pre-COVID. Um, during COVID, obviously, we switched to WebEx a lot since uh, the pandemic has, I suppose, eased off, depending on who you ask. We've now moved back to in-person. So uh, what we're finding is it's pretty much the same uh, in most ways as it was, um, you know, before the pandemic started. So Russ, I guess that means too, if you're, um, if you've got these three train tracks running at the same time, you might have different judges hearing different, not only on different days, but different elements of the case. So does that impact things or how does that impact things? Yeah, it, it can. I mean, what happens is oftentimes on an emergency protection order, um, so what'll happen, the, the way an EPO gets started, so the criminal charges, that's the either the EPS or the RCMP, they are getting involved. They take some witness statements and they are the ones who decide if criminal charges are going to be laid or not. You hear in the US, um, I charged him with assault or I'm going to have him charged. It doesn't really work that way. It's uh, the, the police make that call. Sometimes the complainant is very surprised to learn that there are charges against it, her, her spouse. Um, so what the EPO is a little bit different. What happens there is um, it, somebody has to go into court or before justice of the peace and make the initial application. Then we're in front of um, an EPO justice. And, all, and the reason I'm bringing up all of that detail is often we see the children included on the emergency protection order. So what that means is you've immediately got a court order um, prohibiting contact between, um, I'll call it the offending spouse, um, just to make it simpler, um, where he or she's not allowed to see the children. So often they'll go into the uh, court for emergency protection orders and say, I want parenting time. And the judge who's sitting there will say, I don't deal with parenting time. And because it's uh, at least not in not at the EPO stage. And so it can be interesting when you've got the judge who says, I'm not dealing with parenting right now at the EPO stage. That's at 9.30, then 10 o'clock. It's like, okay, now I'm going to deal with parenting as part of the normal uh, family list. So, but you're right. There's going to be a number of different judges, uh, a judge who's dealing, let's say with um, judicial interim release. So dealing with bail at the criminal level, they're going to hear something that's happened the justice of the peace who's dealing with the emergency protection order initially, they're going to hear a version of what happened and then whatever affidavits um, are written up in family court. So yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of uh, different perspectives, let's say um, on, on what occurred mm -hmm. all at once um, as we sort of sort through this. 
So an EPO could limit an offending spouse's ability to have contact with their children. If we're isolating it just sort of that to that issue of the parenting time, um, mm -hmm. the parenting process can also talk about a direct parenting time. What about the criminal? Is there anything that can touch on parenting time in the criminal conditions area? This is a very leading question because I know <laughs> you and I have actually <laughs> had this, this uh, issue crop up a couple of times on our files. It's really funny. We work together very collaboratively, but sometimes, um, yeah, we, I've dealt with this a lot with you. <laughs> what happens is um, it, the individual who's charged is going to be released on certain conditions. Uh, automatically or almost automatically, one of those conditions is to have no contact direct or indirect with their spouse. Um, and then the crown and the defense uh, are stuck. Like, what do we do about the children? And generally speaking, the prosecutor and the, the criminal bar generally, they're kind of allergic to family law in the sense that they're like, we don't want to deal with any of this. Um, what we'll typically see is something like no contact with the children. And then there might be an exception that says contact or communication with the children pursuant to a family court order is not a breach. So they, they keep that door open. Um, and then that leads to other interesting issues as well, because the person's released on a bail order and that's got certain conditions on them. The EPO might have very different conditions and you got a family court order. So this is sort of the next stage is where we get, we're on these three tracks and then there's three orders and you got to make sure that uh, they're consistent. Otherwise you might have somebody who's, they're like, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm complying, but they're only complying with two of those and breaching the third. So, uh, yeah, it can be, it can be interesting that way. So you mentioned these documents of you, well, you mentioned, we mentioned EPOs a few times mm -hmm. and, um, by actual name at least once, but I think it'd be, might be helpful for some people to kind of dumb it down a little bit and explain like, what what is an EPO? What is a bail? Was it bail conditions? Mm -hmm. Is that what, what it was? And what's usually on those kinds of things? So what the yes, so an, an emergency protection order, um, what that is um, pursuant to the prote uh, Protection Against Family Violence Act. Uh, what happens there is one of the spouses will appear before either judge or justice of the peace. Um, they can do it without notice. So the other spouse isn't there. Uh, they don't, their side of what happened or didn't happen is not heard. And they get an initial uh, emergency protection order. Uh, that is going to be based on whether or not there has been family violence. And so when the justice of the peace, let's say, here's what this claimant is telling them. Most of the time that justice of the peace will say, yeah, okay, there's family violence. And so right away, what they do is they impose an order on the spouse, on the other spouse that usually says no contact at all with the spouse uh, or the children. Uh, it removes them from the family home and uh, there will be, you know, there will be a typically an area restriction. 
And uh, the idea being, this is uh, an urgent issue. This is it's an emergency uh, protection order. And so that's why they want to do it quickly. Uh, our justice system typically requires that a judge hear from both sides before making a decision. This is one of um, those exceptions, right? So those are the hallmarks of an emergency protection order. Now, when we're dealing with uh, bail, or we in the criminal code, it's referred to as judicial interim release. We all know it as bail. Um, a criminal court judge in, is going to decide, should this person be released or not? In other words, if they're not released, they're going to be held uh, usually at the remand center until their criminal charges are dealt with one way or the other, either a trial or guilty plea or something like that. Now, uh, the the starting point is that everybody's entitled to reasonable bail. A judge is going to look at three things if if a crown is urging them to keep this person uh, in remand. They're going to look at number one: is the person likely to attend court appearances in the future? Uh, number two: is there a substantial likelihood that if released, they're going to commit further criminal offenses? And number three. Uh, is uh, more of a public interest piece um, is the justice system going to essentially be brought into disrepute. So those are the factors that that criminal court judge is looking at. Um, so a couple of different things. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but. Um, oh yeah, it does. Like we just, I just wanted to everyone to just have a better kind of understanding. We, we often on this, podcast take for granted what we're saying and uh mm -hmm. we always try to bring it back to like yeah epo is an everyday word for us and so mm -hmm. those that, that was a great overview of both of those Russ. thanks is there so, an average bail like is it like 10 grand 50 grand like what what would be a range Tim is so, yeah. <laughs> she's getting a war chest yeah <laughs> So, How much should I set aside? <laughs> In people's financial plans, this is important. <laughs> it's you make good points. Um, when it when it comes to money, uh, oftentimes what will happen is it won't be as much of a consideration as uh, you might expect. Like when you look at the states, it's like this person was released on a bond of a million dollars, and that just blows my mind. I'm like. I don't know. I don't pretend to know about their criminal justice system. Like, how did they come up with a million dollars? What we want to do, I mean, because um, criminal law uh, disproportionately involves um, people who don't have a lot of money, what we want to avoid is a situation where we're like, okay, if you can post $2,000 dollars, then we're going to release you if you and then that being the, the thinking being, well, that will incentivize them to behave. If they don't have $2,000 to begin with, then we end up in a situation where they're releasable, but because they don't have lots of money, they're still in jail. And so we're incarcerating people who, you know, who are at the poverty line or below it. So money doesn't come up as much um, as you might think. Uh, sometimes it does, uh, but the, the starting point is that um, we don't make them essentially pay up before they're released. It used to be that way. It changed about, oh, I don't know now, five or six years ago where um, that was a recognized problem. So um, they sort of stepped back 
at that point. Um, yeah. Um, what you, you know, so long as somebody does not have a criminal record, um, and you know, they're going to be released. There are some types of, um, criminal offenses where there is what we call a reverse onus, um, where it's now on the accused person to demonstrate why they should be released. Usually it's the other way around. The crown has to demonstrate why they should be, uh, held in custody. So, um, what you'll find is this person is released, um, usually, you know, within, I think the maximum you got, you got to speak to bail usually within 24 hours. So they're typically released or later that day or the next day. Now they've got court conditions on them. And then very soon after that, they receive an emergency protection order that's served on them. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the timeline of that will work. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here um, about the financial aspects for a family. This has got to be tough on a family's finances. If um, there could be up to five lawyers involved, you're looking at bail. Um, maybe one of the bread earners from the family is, um, you know, out of work for a few days, suddenly needs to find somewhere else to uh, be or live. If they have an EPO against them, they can't be in the family home. How does that all work out in such a short period of time? I mean, we're pretty accustomed to like transitioning finances in a slow and measured way for families. And it sounds like this is just kind of like an explosion all at once in a short period of time for those arrangements. Is that is that a difficult thing to manage or figure out? No, it, it absolutely is. And one of the things that sort of exacerbate that is the fact that nobody really planned on this happening. So, um, you don't, you know, we, we joke about having money for bail. The reality is, is, you know, most people don't wake up and think the police will be involved today. I'm going to need a lawyer tomorrow. I'm going to need a second lawyer the day after that. Um, so yeah, it can be really, really, uh, challenging financially, uh, for both parties. Now, one of the things, and, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I'm dealing with this and in my view, when good lawyers are dealing with this, we, we try to uh, resolve as much as we can, as quickly as we can. Um, you know, typically you're not going to like the criminal charges, those take longer uh, because you're dealing with the crown prosecutor's office. You're dealing with uh, the police. So it's going to take a while for their file to make its way through that sort of bureaucratic process and but often what we want to do is or my approach is okay can we get this epo done um, quickly or uh, you know is is there a way where we can ensure that does the claimant the spouse who's who's applying for the epo that you know, they've, they're not, they not only are safe, but they feel safe. They've got that measure. They've got that peace of mind because if we can do that, uh, and if we can resolve it in a way that the spouse, the respondent, the spouse who's received the EPO, if we deal with it, uh, in a way that they can live with, then we can resolve that file right then and there. And then we're just dealing with uh, the family end of things and the criminal, the criminal matter. Um, 
so that's what happens in a perfect world. It's like, okay, let's deal with this EPO. Let's get it done. And then we can move on. Uh, the number of lawyers can complicate it because um, this is what happens. If both spouses, let's say, retain family counsel, um, that's fine. They can deal with um, the divorce separation um, element to it. With the emergency protection order, uh, automatically what happens is they assign a lawyer from the legal aid family law office to deal or to help applicants uh, deal with the EPOs. So that's up now we're up to three lawyers, two family lawyers, somebody from the family law office. Um, somebody's typically representing the respondent at the EPO. That could be a family lawyer, might be somebody different. And then you've got the criminal uh, file. So you've got a crown prosecutor who's assigned to that, or at least a crown prosecutor's office. So it might be different prosecutors dealing with it at different times. And then a criminal defense lawyer. Often what you'll see is either the criminal defense, well, yeah, usually the criminal defense lawyer will help deal with the EPO uh, as well. So you've got all of these different lawyers and where things get really uh, difficult is if they're not talking to each other. If the defense lawyer, for example, is looking at the EPO and saying, okay, that's, that's not a big deal because that's not criminal. Um, it's just another application that's, they might think it's closer to family law than it is to criminal law. So though, you know, not a lot of attention is, let's say is, is spent on that. Um, and then, but the, you know, from the family law perspective, the outcome of that EPO might be pretty important for things like parenting. So um, when you've got communication breakdowns there, um, it can prolong things. It can, um, it, it, it can make things a lot more expensive. Uh, sometimes things now have to be set down for hearings like the EPO because we just can't get it resolved. Um, and so that means it's going to stay in place. Uh, it's going to be difficult. Um, certainly for the respondent, but also for the claimant who, for example, they might need to have some communication lines open to deal with family finances. For example, who's going to pay the mortgage? Who's going to pay the rent? We've got car payments due. Are you paying for those or am I? And there's no contact order. So it can be really challenging to try and coordinate those. Um, man, I don't even remember what your original question was, but... Um, well, I think it shows how intertwined all of these things can be, but how complicated it can get too, right? Like you were talking about no contact conditions. If you're going in the criminal side, like even saying like, hey, so-and-so pass a message on to um, the claimant that the yeah. mortgage needs to get paid. I think sometimes that could be seen still as a breach, whereas it might be allowed under the EPO. So uh, it does get, it legitimately does get really complicated and nuanced and difficult right. to manage all those pieces. Because what we're doing is we're putting in sort of these standard form provisions. It's no contact or communication direct or indirect with the spouse. So um, direct or indirect. So if I, if I tell Evan, I mean, Evan, tell my wife that the mortgage needs to be paid or this visa is due, that's indirect communication. And so I'm, you know, if, if that's a condition of my bail, I'm now break, I'm creating, a, I'm committing another criminal offense just by telling him to do that, even though 
you know, I need that bill paid and I left my credit card at the house or I, you know, I don't have the login information because I'm not allowed at the house, those sorts of things. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, and I'm wearing a wire. So I would give you over in a second. You know what? I knew that about you. <laughs> um, I, I just assumed that. Yeah. So Russ, do you sometimes come across or does it happen to clients that have these kind of things going on at the same time that they experience some kind of fatigue of having to deal with like litigation fatigue or like dealing with lawyers fatigue? Um, because they're, they're like, it's a number of pretty serious grave issues that they're dealing with all of a sudden, all at the same time. And if there is, I'm assuming there is, it's kind of a leading question. <laughs> how, how do you combat that? Or, or, or what's your advice for people that are in that situation in general? Well, if they don't have lawyer fatigue when it's going on, they certainly have it when it's all over. Um, and I think that, yeah, as a lawyer, you, you know that you're going to be dealing with people who are incredibly stressed. Um, often they're terrified, um, especially if there are children involved, because now, you know, they're thinking, what is like, how are the children going to handle this? Um, are they going to handle it badly? How, how can this be mitigated? Um, you know, for most people can go their whole lives without any, without being under police investigation. Um, but now you've got the police looking into this, um, and yeah, you're dealing with any number of lawyers. So people are, are really stressed out by this. Usually what I do, what I tell them is, look, this is going to, it, it, like, I won't lie to you. This is going to be extremely challenging for the next little while. The goal is to try and manage these different processes, get three train tracks reduced to two down to one. Um, if we can get things done without the need for court, we're going to do that. And I think part of it is just telling them, look, everything you're feeling right now is pretty much a normal response. Um, this is what people feel like when they're going through this, you know, if they have benefits, um, through their employment or access to a counselor, usually telling them start there. Um, this is, this can be pretty traumatic, uh, no matter what's, no matter which side of it you're on, if you're the complainant, you know, you're alleging that your spouse assaulted you, obviously that's going to be extremely challenging to go through. But even if you're the accused person or the respondent, um, that also is going to be extremely challenging. So yeah, just trying to point them in the direction of different resources. Um, some are better than others, uh, in my opinion. And, but just making sure that they're aware of all of those, um, that can be, probably the the best um, initial thing a lawyer can do in my view because there are resources. I mean, you know, a claimant for the emergency protection order, they might not know right away that somebody from legal aids, family law office is going to be contacting them and saying, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you want to see happen here. Let's talk options. Um, the victim services is an organization that exists for people who are uh, well, the, the victims, uh, the alleged victims, I guess. Um, they, it's, it can be hit and miss with them in terms of 
how quickly and to what degree they get involved. Um, and, and yeah, and then legal aid, of course, uh, depending on whether somebody is qualified or, you know, meets their income thresholds and that sort of thing. So just making sure that, you know, everybody's aware of what's happening or, and what's available to them. Um, yeah, that's, that's sometimes that's all you have at the beginning, right? Cause you know, there's so many different things happening and usually what they want to know is how does this all shake out? What is the end result? And you got to tell them, I don't know. Um, these, this is sort of the range of, of options. This is what could happen. I don't know which of these at this point is likelier than the other. We need more information. We just need to kind of let the dust settle almost the dust settle almost. Right. Mm. Yeah. So time can sort of be your enemy and your friend uh, at the same mm -hmm. time to work through all of these things. Russ, yeah. I wanted to circle yeah. back to something just kind of a factual thing, I guess. You mentioned that applicants um, will be assigned uh, a lawyer from the Family Law Office of Legal Aid. Is it still the case that respondents are also like they can get a roster lawyer to assist them with the EPOs? Is that right? That used to be the case. But I don't I'm I'm not fresh on that information. I haven't seen that uh, in some time. Okay. Um, it it, for, uh, it could be a thing still. I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Okay. Uh, I do know and that at this point in time, and this, Heather, you could speak to whether this has always been the way it is, but uh, somebody from the family law office is uh, assigned to help the claimant, but that's only at the initial stage. Right. If there's no agreement for resolving an EPO, it's got to go essentially to a mini trial. And... Um, and then the claimant is on their own unless they manage to retain counsel privately. Right. Or yeah. qualify so, through legal aid for continued help. Yeah. yeah. And uh, again, I'm not sure if that's even a thing at this point with mm -hmm. legal aid. I know mm -hmm. they're more restrictive now with what mm -hmm. they cover than, mm -hmm. um, than they have been in some time. So, okay. okay. Yeah. Thanks. What would be a mm -hmm. roster lawyer? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You can take that one, Heather, if you want, or I can. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, Legal Aid has uh, offers legal services through kind of two different models, um, maybe more, but two that I know of. And one of them are staff lawyers. So lawyers who would be full-time employees of Legal Aid. Um, and that's what the lawyers at Family Law Office are. And they kind of get assigned uh, files through Legal Aid. But there's also a roster of lawyers who are lawyers who are out in private practice, but they also sign up to take Legal Aid files at the Legal Aid rate. So they have a contract with Legal Aid and they'll take a file on and submit their bill to Legal Aid and Legal Aid pays them. Um, and that's voluntary. So that's what we kind of, that's what we call the roster. Um, of course, legal aid family law office couldn't help applicants and respondents because that would be a conflict of interest. So it used to be that the, all the applicants would go to family law office and the respondents would go to the roster for a lawyer. Yeah, we talked about that before. I must have forgotten that they were called roster lawyers. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the explanation, Heather. Yeah, thank you for the <laughs> jargon reminder. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So where are these criminal lawyers? How do you find a good one? When you read the newspaper for the big criminal law cases, similar names pop up sort of like 
you know, fancy pants, lawyer, slick back hair kind of thing. But there, I imagine there's a whole pile of criminal lawyers out there that people would be able to locate. How do you find the right criminal lawyer? Well, if you've been charged and released, you can do a Google search, um, which is, I think, what most people do. Um, other people, uh, they'll go by word of mouth. Um, they might know somebody who had to deal with something. And, you know, so they, they contact that person and say, who did you use? Did you like them? Were they effective? So word of mouth is uh, really important. Um, <laughs> if you're charged criminally, sometimes you are just about to go in for an interrogation. They've put you in the phone room and you are using a phone book. And for some of these young guys, it'll, it might be the very first time they've ever used a phone book. Um, and uh, there are numbers posted on the walls, you know, 24 um, seven legal counsel. I've been on the other end of those lines where you're just woken up at four in the morning and you're dealing with somebody who's really disoriented and looking for legal advice. Um, yeah. So I, I guess what, I, and then, you know, if you, if you do spend a day or two in the remand center, um, that is a, that, that there's a wealth of information there in terms of which, uh, defense lawyers are, um, helpful, effective or not. Sometimes it's a matter of opinion. Sometimes it's based on the last result I got. Um, so yeah, eventually they find, uh, like you said, there, there, there are a lot of, defense lawyers out there. Um, well, do you have any names you would drop Russ as somebody who worked in that field, uh, knows people at the, the criminal bar? <laughs> I've got, a, I've got a, a handful of business cards and I'm never without them. <laughs> That's for my own. No, I mean, there, there are lots of lawyers out there. Uh, some, you know, sometimes you need somebody who's who's available for a bail hearing and, uh, you don't, those, you know, somebody's, you know, you're, you're reading about them in the paper. They're in the middle of a two week murder trial. They're probably not going to be available to do a bail hearing for you. Right. So sometimes you're just, you're quickly going down a list of, of numbers. And the per hour charge, is that similar to family law lawyers? It's actually quite different there. Defense lawyers are one of those areas where it's almost 100%, I would say flat feet. Um, they, and usually what will happen is they'll say, okay, this is how much it's going to like, tell me what you're charged with. And then I can tell you how much a bail hearing is going to cost. Once I've got you out, hopefully um, I'm going to get the crown disclosure and then i'll be able to tell you how much the trial is going to cost um because criminal law you're dealing um, with things that are static they've already happened they're in the past they're not ongoing you're in a much better position as a defense lawyer to um uh, just to give them a fee because you know generally how much it's going to cost this is going to be a three-day trial this is going to be a one-day trial we're not going to trial it's just going to be a guilty plea we have this sort of work to do. So when I was in criminal defense, we just did flat fee, um, moving into family law with the hourly rate model was definitely an adjustment. Um, so yeah, you could have one person paying their defense lawyer, just flat fee and then hourly for the family law lawyer. And, um, yeah. So yeah, generally flat fee, I would say.
Okay, so cagey about uh, giving referrals for defense lawyers. Do you actually, <laughs> do you want some names and numbers? I can give you names. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Well, I mean, sure, why not? I mean, if somebody uh, is planning on committing a crime or has just committed a crime and is listening to this, maybe they want a, an endorsement from the Access to Justice crew. Sure. Usually what I'm doing is I'm, I'm providing a um, uh, referrals, um, a couple different uh, names based on seniority. So I'll say, you know, you've got names that you typically hear about. Kent Teske, who was um, the Law Society of Alberta president for a while. Uh, Kent Harriet, he's been at it um, for 25 years, 30 years or something like that. And these are guys who've got a lot of experience. Um, you know, good lawyers are busy lawyers and the more senior you get, the better you get. At least that's the idea, but definitely with um, Kent Teske, Kent Harriet, that's what you're going to get. I went to law school with a fellow named Evan McIntyre. Um, so he has been at it since 2014. He's excellent. Um, and then... Oh man, it's tough to keep track of uh, people who are sort of up and coming um, when you're when you've been out of it for a while. Um, Curtis Steves is one that comes to mind. Um, yeah, these are good lawyers, um, really good lawyers. Uh, I've seen them do bail hearings. I've seen them run trials, and um, yeah, they definitely know what they're about. The nice thing about bail hearings is that's usually where a new defense lawyer gets their start. They run a lot of bail hearings um, because often somebody who's just been charged, like I was not planning on getting charged with this criminal offense. I need a bail hearing. I don't have lots of money. So they're going to go for somebody who's relatively new. And uh, yeah, he's just wandered off. Evans left the podcast. Do you think, do you think he's making a phone call? He's like, I don't know. He's like, I need to call Kent Harriet. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to delete this entirely from the show. So, what are the uh, wild, like, does criminal law present with exciting, interesting things going on more so than other types of law? It can. I mean, you're going to get wild stories. That's where you're dealing with the guns and the drugs and the, uh, you know, those sorts of things. Other areas, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, challenging situations. And then in criminal law, it's like, yeah, um, my client just sort of stabbed someone. That's how they dealt with that problem. Um, you know, and so it can be just really, I, I found it really interesting. I, I love learning about the different things. So if there's a drug transaction or something and the police are trying to say it's trafficking. Well, they got to bring in an expert to say why this is trafficking. And then, then you get into, this is the amount of drugs. This is how much this amount of whatever meth goes for on the street. This is how it's produced. And so, you know, it's sort of, you get into a world that as a lawyer, you're hopefully not going to see in your, in your day to day. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting. Everything happened in the past. So, you know, it's not like family law where it's ongoing, like, okay, you, you show up at work on Monday and now you're going to hear about what happened with this 
parenting time or that, you know, those sorts of things. Um, it can be a lot more dramatic. That said, for I would say for every trial that runs in criminal law, there's probably 20 files that resolve with a guilty plea. Um, so, uh, you're not all, you know, you know, you can, you can be running trials once a week, but that probably means, you know, you've got that many more that are just resolving because it's like, well, the crown can prove their case. Let's just get a, let's get the credit for an early guilty plea, get this done. Or it might be the crown says, I cannot prove this, or I can prove three of these, or I can prove one of the four offenses you're charged with. So if you plead guilty to that one, I'll drop the other ones. And so there's, you know, that sort of wheeling and dealing going, uh, mm -hmm. going on. And uh, sometimes you set a trial because, you know, you want to see what witnesses are going to show up. Not everybody shows up all the time. Um, mm -hmm. And without those witnesses, crowns, you know, <laughs> can't prove their case. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, the, the trials are fun. They're interesting. Um, and the files themselves can be pretty dramatic, but um, I don't know. It's, it's definitely not what you might see on TV or things like that. Um, you generally know roughly what the witnesses are going to say. They can surprise you. Um, but it's, it's, you know, tip, especially with the crown prosecutor, with their witnesses, uh, they have to disclose um, any witness statements that that person provided. So it's never this person who's going to come up to the witness stand and, you know, we have no idea what it is they're going to, what's going to come out of their mouth. Right. So mm. um, Are people shuffling around in handcuffs and orange jumpsuits. Is that how it goes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like um, <laughs> Yeah. That, okay. Fine. There's the exception. That's a bit more like TV. Um, <laughs> That happens you know, in family and EPO court sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it can. Um, when you're, yeah, when you're defense counsel, you go to the remand center quite a bit. Um, you go to Fort Saskatchewan Provincial um, Jail. There's the Edmonton Max, which is um, just up Fort Road there. Uh, there's Bowdoin. How come Calgary doesn't have? Or maybe they do, but I thought Calgary doesn't really have a max prison like Edmonton. Is that correct? I don't think so. I think that the the Edmonton um, institution is is the one maximum security facility. So what happens is um, there will be provincial court jails. That's where you go if your sentence, if your jail sentence is um, two years less a day, and then if you get more time than that, then you are in the federal penitentiary system. And then in the federal penitentiary system, they're going to give you a security designation, minimum, medium, or maximum. And um, so if you are in maximum security, let's say, then you're going to go to the Edmonton institution, at least if, if they keep you in Alberta. So um, yeah, and there might be different reasons why somebody might want to serve their sentence in a federal institution versus a provincial uh, a provincial facility. So yeah, it can get pretty interesting that way, but yeah, you get to see the interior of a lot of, it's nice to be able to go into a prison knowing that at the, at some point later that day, you can get out. Um, and so it's probably uh, better than the alternative. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't compare the two. I'm, I've never, I've never served a sentence in there, but mm -hmm. I, I would think you're right about that.
Russ, to return a little bit to like family and criminal law interaction, I have, uh, this has come up, I think, on sort of both sides of the table before. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the different standards that might be used in the different processes? So, for example, a person might say like, well, I got acquitted or the Crown dropped the charges over here and the criminal stuff. So, of course, that means that none of the allegations are valid. I'm innocent we're done here, right? There's no EPO. The kids can see me again. Does it work like that? Why or why not? Complete <laughs> vindication. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, <laughs> but it's a natural sort of source of confusion and misunderstanding. I think sometimes it, it can be extremely frustrating if you are accused of a crime and which, you know, you're, you're, absolutely certain you did not commit in any way you take it to trial and a judge they don't find you innocent no you know i think i've had one trial where a judge actually said yeah i don't think this happened at all most of the time it's just the crown has not proven their case a crown in order to secure a conviction uh, you got to meet a really high threshold when you're crowned. And we've heard it before. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, you will see judges who will say things like, I think this person did it, or I'm really suspicious. You know, I think it's likelier than not that they committed this crime. And then that judge will say, but that's not enough. Um, the, the threshold's higher than that. So uh, I've seen one judge say, so it's with considerable reluctance that I find this person not guilty. And, um, so then that person, you know, that's kind of a, I don't know, it's not what they hope to hear, but that's all that the criminal justice system will give them. And then what will happen is they'll go into family court and they think, okay, well, I was acquitted or the crown gave up on the charges. Therefore, um, it should be a blank slate as far as something like parenting time goes. And no, that's not the case. And and sometimes you'll have, this will happen more in a, in a rural area where you might have the same judge dealing with criminal matters and family matters. And the judge will say, not in so many words, but it's like, just because you were found not guilty doesn't mean I don't have concerns here. Um, and that's because, you know, in a family on a family father looking at best interests of the children, you know, if there's a suspicion that something happened, well, that family court judge is going to be careful, notwithstanding there was a finding of not guilty, notwithstanding that the crown might've given up on the charges. Um, EPOs sort of fall in the middle. Um, and typically the way I, I describe that standard, it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just it's like the, the question is, is it likelier than not that family violence has occurred? Um, if it is, then yeah, that EPO can be confirmed. Um, if it's not, then not, um, when it comes to family law, um, uh, it's, it's really difficult to, to say seriously that there's any kind of standard there. Um, mm. it's, it can be, it's, it's far fuzzier. If I have a client who is, um, who was found not guilty, let's say of an assault that was alleged to have occurred in front of the children, I'm typically telling them, look, you know, this, you're not out of the woods necessarily. Like, let's just, let's deal with this as though the judge has a suspicion of what occurred. 
um because that's you know you're you're safest if we do it that way so let's go into that with like a plan to show that whatever may or may not have happened <laughs> won't happen again um and so yeah so you are dealing with different legal standards and you know a judge is going to approach it um from different viewpoints and that's just that can be really disorienting for for somebody who's gone through all three processes, you know, um, just to, because yeah, you're, you're taking a tour of our justice system. Um, yeah, yeah. which is not as fun on the same facts in some ways. And, um, yeah. is the opposite true? Like what if you are convicted of assaulting your former partner, does that mean that you won't get to see your children or the, I mean, I, it's a loaded question. I know there's probably a lot more context there, but is there, there's no presumption is there, or how does that affect things the other way? If you're so it's really going to depend on a few things. If, if you're found guilty of assaulting your former spouse, um, but let's say the kids were at summer camp when, you know, that occurred, it's going to, a judge is going to approach that differently in most cases than if the assault that you're convicted of happened in front of the children. Um, and, but, you know, even if, even if you're, I mean, yeah, it is fact dependent, but generally speaking, no, you're still a parent, even though you've been found guilty of assault. Um, it might be a bit of time before you're going to have parenting time that's quote unquote normal. You might have supervised parenting. It might be um, pretty restricted, um, at least to start. It, it, it can be, I mean, yeah, you're, you're in a hole and it might take a bit of time to dig your way out of it. Um, because what a judge is, you know, very aware of is, you know, the physical, emotional, psychological well-being of the children. And judge is going to recognize, okay, what's good for the children usually is having a relationship with both parents, but how do we balance that with those sort of safety concerns that could include, you know, supervised parenting or just a parenting plan that says, you know, the offending spouse is going to do this sort of counseling uh, for this period of time. We're going to see how they do. Um, I mean, if the, if the, if, you know, if the spouse found not or found guilty is doing jail time, well, yeah, that generally means there's not going to be a whole lot of parenting time mm -hmm. uh, while they're serving their sentence. Um, but you know, what we want to do is generally judges want to, uh, if, if it makes sense, they want to reestablish that relationship because, you know, typically it is good for the children to have that relationship with both parents. Right. As long as it's safe and in yeah. the kid's best interest to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, managing the conflict then between the parents is probably an important element of that, right? Like laying out the communication or being very specific about how parenting time happens, when, where, how it's organized, those kinds of things. And mm -hmm. probably the finances too, because you see that sometimes too, is that out of desperation, people end up 
having contact again and kind of getting drawn in and the conflict can sometimes just sort of cycle around again because all of that stuff isn't managed and it's hard to get all that stuff done quickly and efficiently. And yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, it, good lawyers, uh, what they'll do is they'll try and reduce that sort of conflict. They'll say, all right, this is a family that's pretty much in crisis. Uh, we need to at least like often what will happen is there will be exceptions to the various orders we've talked about that allow for communication through counsel. But then if you've got counsel, you know, if you've got lawyers at their hourly rate, passing messages back and forth about paying bills, well, that adds up. So what you, where it makes sense to do. So you want to try and open up a, uh, at least a, a very limited um, direct communication line between uh, the parties, just uh, if nothing else about household finances uh, and then eventually maybe dealing with parenting time. But, you know, you're, you're telling both of them ideally that look, assume a judge is going to read everything that you guys are communicating with each other. And that can be effective if, if they know that, um, but yeah, I mean, what you're, what you're trying to do is, you know, hopefully both lawyers are trying to do this. It's just, okay, let's put together a plan, um, that reduces all of like eliminating the conflict is, I mean, that's, that's not really realistic. That's not how people work. Like things went down, um, there's conflict, but it's just, it's managing that. Um, so, you know, you can keep the the legal fees down, keep the court appearances, um, like reduce them, eliminate them where you can. Um, for example, one way that we often see it with an EPO is with what's called uh, a mutual restraining order. Um, basically what that does is it cuts both ways. It says these two are not going to, the spouses are not going to speak to each other except in these circumstances. And it could say, we could say by email or text message or the co-parenter app, um, different things like that. Um, and what that does, that does a couple of things. Number one, it means we can get rid of that EPO because now it's replaced by mutual restraining order, no more EPO appearances. And, uh, another thing that we can do is, um, you know, it takes the risk out of it because the claimant is, you know, she's going into that trial, that mini trial we've talked about, and she doesn't know if a judge is going to confirm this or not. Uh, often it's judge dependent. I mean, one of the things we look at, we talk about as lawyers is different judges looking at identical facts come to different conclusions because they're human too. And so you're taking the risk out of that. You know, the person, the respondent on the EPO uh, is they got to be worried that this thing's going to be confirmed. You know, if you get something like a mutual restraining order, that takes the risk right out of it. And that means now you can focus on other things, right? So that's, that's one way um, to try and uh, address, like quickly address some of this. Um, deal with some of the uncertainty and and just calm things down, which is usually what I'm telling people. Like the goal here is just to everybody calms down a little bit, not in a patronizing way, just, you know, um, we're trying to just keep, get things back under control so that we can manage this as a, as a sort of a family dispute 
understanding that, yeah, there's criminal charges. Um, that's a lot bigger than just these two individuals. Um, but, you know, notwithstanding that, um, we can sort of keep things under control. So um, that's sort of step one. That's where you want to get the family to where, okay, maybe we can deal with the EPO. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We've, we've abandoned it. We've done something else with it. And now we can focus on what's parenting going to look like, what's division, like who's going to pay for the bill, who's going to pay the bills. We'll let the criminal uh, matter play out. We had that we've had that more than once and that's kind of the goal. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Just kind of yeah, managing it, right. Anticipating what the challenges are, knowing that there are going to be challenges, but how are you going to address them as they come up throughout the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cameras, yeah. you looked like you had something you wanted to say or ask, or you? I was sort of musings about having musings about the burnout rate for criminal lawyers. I imagine there's a, a lot going on, but maybe it's similar to family law lawyers as well. Is is there is is it known that criminal like criminal lawyers, do you call them criminal lawyers or criminal law lawyers? <laughs> Yeah. Do they do they stay in the profession a long time or are they a bit more like paramedics where they go in, guns ablazing, and then just, you know, fizzle out over time? There is an attrition rate. Um, it's, uh, I'm not, I mean, Crown prosecutors, they have their own challenges too, but uh, being a criminal defense lawyer is hard. I mean, you have to really want to do it. You have to uh, have... Uh, the right mindset because you're in court every day. Um, you are dealing with extremely challenging situations. Your clients have their own struggles. You have to know about different things like, um, you know, like in, indigenous individuals are overrepresented uh, in the criminal justice system. You're going to have a lot of uh, indigenous uh, clients, unfortunately. Um, and uh, what you need to be aware of is, especially when it comes to something like sentencing, you know, you, you have to be uh, aware of some of those um, downstream effects of colonialism in the residential schools. And that can be really challenging Um you know, reading these reports of, of how these individuals came to be where they are. Hmm. Um, some of the, I mean, yeah, the files that you're dealing with, uh, they're, they're not easy. Uh, when you're looking at the, the crown disclosure, you're, you're seeing things, um, that stay with you. Um, you are, you know, so you got it, you got it. And there's, there's no real, there's no formalized training for any of that. It's just, okay here are some autopsy photos. And, uh, and so you got to deal with that. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's nothing to say if you're trying to run a, a business on top of that, you know, if you've got your own firm, uh, all the usual lawyer things like trying to get paid, um, trying to manage your schedule, trying to grapple with a really bad decision. If, um, a judge, blew it, let's say, and you're like, okay, do we appeal? Do we not? I mean, those are emotional things and like to think that, yeah, we're professionally detached, but that's just not always the reality, right? If you get a bad decision that can stay with you. Um, Alex Pringle, he was, uh, an excellent defense lawyer. He 
passed away about seven or eight years ago. Uh, and he taught us in first year criminal law. And he said a lot of, you know, a judge who makes a really like, they just, it's, let's just call it, it is a bad decision. Um, that leads like a lot of lawyers. They just, they quit at that point. Um, it can be, especially with criminal defense, it can be a really thankless job. You've got, you know, friends and family saying, how can you defend somebody who does X? How can you represent somebody who's this type of person? Um, it's a thankless job. You're often alone. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, you're, you're up against the resources of the state, the, you've got professional police force, um, you know, it, it can seem like it's one-sided. So, I mean, yeah, um, what will happen it, eventually, at, at least for me, you would just realize, oh, I haven't seen that person in a while. I wonder what happens. Like they moved out, they burned out, they're in a different area of law. They went over to the crown because of, you know, the, the struggles are different. Um, they're very different. And, um, but I'll say this, I mean, crown prosecutors, especially in the rural areas, you've got the Fort Saskatchewan rural uh, prosecutor's office. And these, you know, there'll be six prosecutors and what they do is they, sh you know, they show up uh, early in the morning at the office, load up three or four bankers boxes worth of files, drive all the way to somewhere like Athabasca or Barhead, have to get through all of these files, have to make quick decisions on the fly. And then they pack it all up and drive home. And this can be in a blizzard. It can be, you know, uh, all sorts of conditions and then rinse and repeat. You got to do it the next day. So, um, yeah, I, I would say burnout, burnout is up there. Okay. I think, I think it, I think it can be an issue. They perform a necessary job function. If there wasn't anybody to represent the criminals there, there wouldn't be a fair work process. So I, well, it's more than that, Kim, like, Criminal defense lawyers, I didn't really appreciate this until I went to law school and, and learned about it, but they're the last line of defense against the state, really, because they're, they're a, a check in the power. And so people, I understand why people find it difficult when somebody who seems by all accounts to be guilty goes free and gets off on a technicality or something. But um, I think getting them on, getting guilty people, uh, out of like, uh, getting guilty people to be found innocent, I think is a victory for freedom, which is kind of, give me a sec. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, Kim muted herself when she sneezed. I, I do yeah. not have a mute button there. Well, I'm just rude. <laughs> I guess. Excuse, excuse me, everyone. <laughs> um, it, it's, I mean, what I just said is kind of, you know, I don't mean to be absurd or ridiculous because obviously um, when people commit crimes, it, it's important that they pay the price for that because that helps protect innocent people. And I'm not saying that um, at all that uh, people that are guilty of crime should go free. But what I am trying to say is even worse than any given crime is state sponsored oppression of people. And that's, that's kind of like the defense bar, the people, the lawyers that are practicing as defense attorneys and, and defense lawyers that are doing their best to, they really, the real job isn't to, to get the, their client out of jail free or anything like that. The real job is to make sure that the government 
is doing their job of meeting that very high standard of proving that the person committed the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. It can't just be, we well, we all know, we all know that they did it. It has to be like verifiable proof. And unless they're held to that high bar, then you get police state situations. You get situations where the state just runs roughshod over people's rights and they just grab somebody and they're like, yeah, well, you're pretty much guilty. We all know it. So you're, you're going to jail or you're getting the death penalty or whatever. So going to law school really helped me understand that better, that it, it may seem like defense lawyers are getting people off scot-free, but really what they're doing is making sure that the state does their job. And so if a criminal goes, doesn't go to jail, the defense lawyer is the wrong person to get mad at. It's, it's the police. And I don't, and I'm not condoning like getting mad at police, but, or, or other public servants, but it's those, that's where the ball has been dropped or the person just committed the perfect crime. That's possible too. But really it's the responsibility of the police to make sure they're getting enough evidence and that the evidence can prove who committed the crime. And then for the, the prosecutors to make sure that uh, they're demonstrating that the person committed the crime beyond reasonable doubt. And if they can't do that, then people can't go to jail. So that brings up another question. What's the handoff between police and a criminal lawyer? Do you guys like meet in a room, give, give over the data? <laughs> What does that look like? I don't know. I, I've never practiced there. And I mean, Russ was on the other side, but you, Russ, you probably have a better insight than I do. So you're asking how does the police investigation uh, get to the crown? Or are you asking how does the person, um, I, I want to, I want to make sure I understand your yeah, question. On TV, on TV, the lawyer comes in on SVU and they're like the old files. <laughs> they know what's happening. Yeah. Um, oh, I think my fire alarm's going off in my building. Um, hopefully you can't hear that, but, uh, yeah, there's like, suddenly the lawyers got these files and they're like, here's what's happening. And the police are like, Oh, you know, have all the evidence. You gotta, you gotta get the bad guy. So is that kind of how it works? They're very interactive. You'd like to think so. Um, and, and sometimes that's how it works on the more serious files. So if there's a complex, um, drug or gang file, you're going to have, um, crown prosecutor involvement at an earlier stage. Um, the majority though, of, uh, criminal files, the police, they do their own thing. In other provinces, you have what's called charge screening, where the police, they arrest somebody and then a crown at a very early stage, they filter through like, no, we're never going to get a conviction on this. And so they toss it. Um, in Alberta, unless they've made a change recently, which I, I don't think they have, um, what will happen is the police will charge somebody. And so long as it's not one of those, like a, like a murder file or something really serious that's automatically assigned to a crown prosecutor, um, they're going to just be thrown into the queue, so, so to speak. And then usually the first time a crown prosecutor really looks at that file is on, is on the court date. Like, okay, let's see what this is about. And, um, and, and so, no, there's, there's not a whole lot of coordination, um, 
And it seems like the, the larger the urban center you get to, the less coordination there is. And so now sometimes you'll get a, um, a file that's in for a first appearance and the Crown Prosecutor will say, I, I don't have a file. <laughs> and so um, I guess we're, we're prosecuting this person for these offenses that I can see on a sheet, but I know, I know nothing further. So, um, so yeah, it, it can be, it, it can be interesting. It's, it's never this, you know, the person's charged the next day. <laughs> it's not law and order. Um, and, and that, you know, it, what we do see is, um, yeah, on, on solid investigations that are, taking some time and they've got, you know, some pretty senior police on there. Often they'll consult with uh, lawyers ahead of time. Like, for example, do we have uh, the grounds to execute a search warrant on this residence? And, um, and so that's where you'll see um, some, some integration, we'll call it. Um, other times, no, there's none of that. Um, and you know, you've got one docket crown who's got 80 files on their list and no, they don't have time that morning to look through every single one. Um, you know, sometimes they'll flag some of the, the more concerning ones or, or something like that. But yeah, usually you're just looking at the previous crown's notes and, um, and just making quick decisions that way. Yeah. Perfect system, Kim. I think they, they definitely would but we don't have a perfect system and with any big organization and the government is a very big organization, you inevitably get inefficiencies. And I think that, I think you've just highlighted one of them that we have at least here in Alberta. You know, I have, I have, uh, friends that are police officers and, um, you know, I think it's common for them to be frustrated with the lawyers that, you know, they feel like they, they dealing with this person who's obviously a bad guy and they've dealt with them so many times and, and whatever, committing various crimes and they arrest them and provide the evidence. And then the guy's back out on the street. Um, so I can, I can appreciate that. Why that would be frustrating from a police officer's perspective. Um, and I'm aware of like crown prosecutors who feel uh, sort of a mirror way, which is like, just follow the rules when you're gathering evidence and arresting the bad guys. And I can be a lot more efficient in getting them put away. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cause that's ultimately it. It's not that police, but it's the, the defense lawyer is making sure that everyone's following the rules along the way. Right. So that the evidence is good and tested and legally obtained and all of those things. Right. Keeping everybody honest and accountable. Yeah. 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 It's funny that we've wandered into this area because like Russ doesn't practice criminal law anymore. Nope. Heather and I have never practiced criminal law. And yet here we are talking about... I did about, two files as an article oh, student. Yes. Apologies, Heather. Whoa. I did not mean to underqualify you. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, you know, but it, it is interesting. It's something we haven't talked about on here before. Uh -huh. And, you know, hopefully people are finding it interesting and getting some value out of here. But, you know, um, Russ... I think does a really good job at helping where criminal ends and family begins is kind of where Russ is the area Russ works in. Now, and he, he doesn't just do those as well. You can, you don't have to be a criminal or alleged criminal in order to have to be Russ's client. He likes 
you know, the ones that get along too, mm. where there's no EPOs. Well, and I've found Russ, you to be very effective for people who also are on the other side, right? When they are the person who's uh, alleged family violence, because you understand how the criminal process works and how it dovetails with family law. So, you know, I, I don't know if you get asked this, but they're like, what if you were sitting on the other side of the table, right? Like, I think that those skills are equally valuable for whichever um, party you're acting for in the situation, but it's a little shout out to Russ there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it, it, it's good to have that knowledge um, so that, you know, sometimes you know, the other family lawyer you're dealing with, uh, they won't always they're like, okay, well, what's the process? What's going to happen here? And, you know, sharing that information, uh, it's great. Right. I've, I mean, I've got a file with, um, someone who, uh, another lawyer who she does real estate and we've got a really complicated situation with the family home. And she's just taken that aspect over completely. So it can be, uh, really beneficial. I, I had one file where um, the the parents were getting along and then something happened like there, which, you know, one of their children became a victim of a crime. And so uh, at the next four way meeting, I was able to sort of walk them both like through, like, this is what you can expect. This is sort of the process. Mm -hmm. This is the timeline. Um, and, you know, and so I think that helped them a little, like, it, it, it's nice to have that because yeah, it, it comes up not infrequently. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. These can be highly charged situations and, you know, other yeah. people might be calling the police to, to deal with your family, even if it's not one of the spouses who are, who are involved. Right. So. Yeah, that's right. It's not necessarily family violence that's happening, right. It could be criminal charges sort of coming from any aspect of, of life. Yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah. I feel like Kim should be heeding the evacuation of her building. I don't it's very quiet in the background. Sounds like someone's playing some kind of video game from the 80s. I look out, like right down that way is Jasper Avenue, and I'm like watching all these fire trucks roll, and I'm like, oh, uh, uh, I'll pack up my stuff. And you it's know, like, she's really, she's really dedicated to this podcast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got it in so. with the fire department. They, they won't, like, I'll probably be first rescue. Maybe, maybe you go. your husband just wanted to visit you at work. Oh, that would be so sweet. <laughs> so sweet that he like incurs all the like hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses to <laughs> offer you him. Uh, like a bouquet of flowers or something. Oh, yeah. What if he shows up outside her window like on a ladder or something <laughs> like the that? Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> How high up are you, Kim? Uh, twenty-three floors. I think Bruce would not make it. <laughs> would he? Would he go up the ladder? Or would he rappel down from the roof? Well, the ladder doesn't go up this high. I don't think so. Um, he's gonna yeah. shoot one of those claw things up. <laughs> a grappling hook. Yeah, he's gonna shoot a grappling hook up. Get it over the head. Like, yeah. Yeah. I I think they all have to just come up through the stairs. I think that's how it goes with the twenty-third floor. Mm, that's why it's taking a while. He'll be there any minute, right? <laughs> I know. I've got a bunch of clients who uh, are probably who are firefighters who are probably downstairs, and uh, I I think that they would be the ones, not my husband, to care. 
<laughs> Bruce is so laid back. He's like a fire, no big deal. Yeah, you'll be good. You'll be fine. Yeah, you got oh, lots cool. of time. Lots of time. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an official message from any fire department or legal <laughs> advice. <laughs> or safety advice. Yeah. Um, I have one closing sort of comment, I guess. If you're interested in the criminal justice system and people's roles in it, uh, a very good friend of mine who is also a guest on the podcast today gifted me a book called Nothing But the Truth by Marie. I can never pronounce her name. Heenan? Heenan? Heenan. She's a Canadian, just megastar defense lawyer, but her biography is great. If you Google her and listen to interviews she's done on the radio, she's just a great speaker and um, really puts, I think, an interesting perspective on this and explains the role of a defense lawyer in the criminal justice system just really well. So, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. yeah, just a a little referral or a little um, suggestion there if you're interested in more reading or listening. Yeah. Um, There was just one quick thing I wanted to add um, Mm -hmm. as as we were talking. What I found interesting is this. So criminal defense lawyers are criminal defense lawyers. They don't prosecute. That's the crown prosecutor. That's a whole nother department. Um, They don't really cross over except in um, certain circumstances, which rarely happens. So you would expect that there would be um, a really big divide between crown and defense. Like the cases that come out, they're sort of defense friendly or crown friendly. Um, ideologically, there is a bit of a divide between them. But what you find is that uh, the criminal bar is extremely uh, collegial. Um, when you, you know, there are uh, hockey teams comprised of crown prosecutors and defense. It, it can be, um, and I think that's really healthy. My, my hockey team is mostly uh, criminal practitioners on both sides of the bar. Yeah. And it it can be, I I think those relationships can be really healthy because you can just have a frank discussion about, okay, which way is this file going to go? And that surprised me because when I got to family law, I didn't always see that amongst the family bar. I mean, some lawyers are extremely collegial, others less so. Uh, But I, I found that surprising because with family law, like Today, you might be representing the husband or the payor or spousal support or child support. And tomorrow, you might be uh, representing the wife on a different file who's the recipient. And so there's not, you don't have that same ideological divide. It's not like those who, like, I represent husbands and Heather represents wives. You, you don't have that. You're, you're um, always on either side of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you, you, and so I thought I would expect like a lot more collegiality at the family bar, um, than what you see at the criminal bar. Um, but, um, no, I mean the, the, the criminal bar, it, it's great when they get along. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the gloves come off in court, um, cause that, that's the way it has to be. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a really interesting area, um, to practice in, and yeah, I, I just, I thought of that. I forget what, what made me think of that just now, but, um, yeah, what no, kind it's of definitely dovetail- interesting. 
Yeah, it dovetails with the idea of like you're a good fit, I think, for someone on either side of the family violence question because you understand the system, right? Not because you've been an advocate on one side or the other, but because you get it, um, the process generally. Yeah, I mean, when you can just, like you said, Heather, or maybe like I said, like when you can just manage those files get them sort of under control so that you've gone from like three tracks and you know now i mean we've we've had situations where there's a lot of criminal charges there's a lot of violence alleged mm -hmm. and you know if you can get those individuals let's say into a four-way meeting or something to try and and resolve it yeah. i mean that's magic i mean that's mm -hmm. awesome that i think is like lawyer, like if you can do that, that's where you're bringing the most value, I think, to your clients. Um, it's not always possible and it's not always appropriate, uh, desirable. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, but when, when you can get it to that level, it's, it's, uh, I think, yeah, that's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for agreeing to come on here, Russ. It's only been a year and a half or so of us. <laughs> Of Heather pestering you. Uh, we, <laughs> I had to get you into Kahane Law Office before we could finally seal the deal. So uh, that's a win-win all around for me. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's a lose, lose, lose for you, but <laughs> no. so be it. <laughs> no, it's 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 been a lot of fun for sure. It'd be yeah, nicer well, if it was warm out and we could just go to a patio or something like that. But um, mm -hmm. it is Edmonton, right? So yeah, one day yeah. maybe. Um, yeah. And so just a reminder to everybody to uh, subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Um, we really appreciate you being here with us. And uh, thanks again to you, Russ, for joining us. And um, if you have any questions, feel free to email them to us at... Um, access to justice no a to j podcast right and you oh my gosh it's the full thing access access number two justice podcast at gmail.com <laughs> yeah uh, wow anyways if i screwed that up just listen to another episode earlier episode where we got it right go to our, go to our website is this what post-production is for i i i'm not, just not gonna do it just not no gonna do it. no we it's just, just let raw. it all it's the raw all footage the... yeah we're real we're real <laughs> it all just hangs out yeah we do our best there. but we're not perfect <laughs> Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. 
Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFP, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.